The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. And now for something completely different. Hey, I was, I'm a Hall of Famer. I'm in three Halls of Fame. For the young fans, it, they don't give a damn. They just give a damn about themselves and what they're hearing now. And I got no problem with those rules. I know the rules going in. I'm happy to play the game that way. And when Ivan came off with that uh, knee drop from the top rope and he pinned me, I thought that something happened. I couldn't hear a thing. You could have heard the pin drop in that arena. It touched me so deeply that when I went in the dressing room, I really felt depressed. I'll tell you that, I'll tell you right to his face. If it's Hogan and I, if he wanted to get in a real street fight with me, trust me, he would lose, and he knew it. You know, that's the other thing. They give you the belt, and they're like, okay, you're in charge of me. I was like, what? When you mentioned a guy like Harley Race, that kind of legendary status, it's obvious why people would get upset. Or as I'm concerned, Roddy Piper was not a wrestler. He wasn't even a good worker. If he had to go out and work his way to the top and not have good friends like Jim Barnett. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying he's not a good guy. He's just not a tough guy. Bro, I swear to you, I don't have an ego. Like, I don't give a crap. I, that stuff is not important to me. People don't know me. They have no idea of who I am. They know of me as being a fictional character that they saw on TV. People didn't understand that, you know, the guy they saw in the ring that happened to be using his real name and happened to actually be the president of the company, they really believed that that guy that they loved to hate was actually a pretty decent guy. And I think many people have the perception that I really was that character. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. two-man power trip of wrestling and you are listening to feature episode number 19 of the two-man power trip of wrestling podcast if you didn't know by now my name is chad and as always i'm joined here by my tag team partner the one and only jp john pause and john coming back yet again for another huge feature episode where we step back into the literary realm with a wwe hall of famer the soul man Rocky Johnson gracing our airwaves for the first time ever. What an awesome get 
for the show. What an awesome book to be finally hitting the uh, the scene when you think about guys that have a story to tell. Obviously, Rocky Johnson would definitely be one of the more intriguing ones because I don't know if you know this, but he's got a son who uh, did a little bit in the wrestling world, went on to do something else with his life uh, after he stepped away from the business, but we'll talk about that soon. But uh, just an awesome chat that we got here on tap with you and uh, Rocky today. Uh, looking forward for everybody to hear this. It's a big uh, episode, but Rocky Johnson writing a book, that's pretty big in itself. He's got a lot to tell. He's got a lot of stories, and we're ready to hear it from the, uh, the soul man himself. Yeah, baby, it's Soul Man, the Rocky Johnson story. Scott Teal, legendary, great author, is uh, commanding the ship on that one. He's the captain of that ship, and it definitely adds to his great library of books that's one thing for sure as far as the soul man himself think about him for a second and think about his career and just his charisma the way he moved and everything else and then look at his son and you think man and, and i mean this is pretty damn obvious but think about it if rocky johnson doesn't exist the rock doesn't exist in in the sense i mean it's very very obvious but in the sense of that charisma translated down to his son the way he can have certain movements translated down to his son just like kind of the way he handles himself the way he looked as far as as his build and his physique all those positive attributes went down to his son and obviously like you said his son became one of the biggest professional wrestlers of all time and one of the biggest hollywood actors of all time one of the biggest action stars of all time and to think of kind of where he started with as far as training under Rocky, under his father, and where he ended up is just absolutely and utterly amazing. But when you have a father like that, a guy that was so instrumental in the wrestling business, was so legendary, was so great, was so charismatic, you know, you kind of kind of figure the son is going to turn out pretty damn good. One of the first things I remember seeing after getting into the Coliseum videos and getting into the uh, the older archive of the WWF was the awesome title victory of Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson being the first African-American tag team champions and in the World Wrestling Federation in that era. Uh, for the two of them with the bodies that they had to be marquee players was a big, big deal. But I just remember the crowd reaction, and that's the, the clip, obviously, that we're going to hear here off the top of the episode that I play before our uh, little chit-chat here. Um, but the reaction and the uh, the emotion of the fans, it just came straight through the television set. And I think that as we explore this book and as people get to read it, they get to see there's a lot more to that story with him and Tony Atlas. Now, I know they've patched things up over the years. I know that they've gotten past some of their issues, but I think one of the more interesting things is that these guys were trailblazing tag team champions, and they did not get along, and I think that is one of the more fascinating things when you think about how impressive their tag team was, both on the screen and how, like, uh, <laughs> you know, diabolical it was behind the scenes that these two guys just did not get along. Yeah, we touched upon that in the interview, and I say, you know, Soul Patrol, they win the tag titles. It probably wasn't as long of a reign as it should have or could have been, and when they beat the Samoans, I mean, that was a huge moment in the wrestling business, a huge moment, obviously, for the black community as well. I mean, it's just absolutely huge. So you think that Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas on TV anyway have this great relationship, have this great chemistry, they're a great tag team, I mean, look at their physical 
physiques. Look at the, the charisma these guys have. You just look at them from top to bottom and just think, like, man, these guys got it, and they got it all, and they're going to be able to be great WWF tag team champions, and they're going to have all this huge reign, and it's going to be great, and this and that. But no, behind the scenes, and Rocky talks about this in pretty good detail, they just didn't get along. They just hated each other. Rocky didn't like what he was all about. Tony didn't like what he was all about. Rocky Tony had a bit of an ego. He would kind of get in his ear saying, you should be getting the Hogan spot, and, and I should be getting the Hogan spot, and, and different things like that, and kind of being divisive behind the scenes, and maybe being a little political, and Rocky did not like that at all. So it is interesting to see that guys in the wrestling business that are great tag teams on screen can be terrible tag team partners behind the scenes because they absolutely hate each other and they can't stand each other and that led to the demise of the tag team that's why the reign was only about 150 days um, and it was uh, and he said it was destined to be a lot lot longer than that and it was uh, in the cards and in the plans by vince telling them it's going to be a long run and then as soon as they kind of started teaming together and starting to flow together they realized that it wasn't going to work and that they absolutely could not get along behind the scenes isn't it funny you say 150 days and like that wasn't a long run for these guys yeah yeah yep. <laughs> 150 days now would be like uh you know like the longest modern reign of a tag team champion period yeah yeah uh but yeah just a captivating story the two of them i've heard tony atlas talk about it countless times and you know he gives his side of things and obviously now rocky can give it in book form he's talked about it in other interviews before hannibal our good buddy up north uh, in canada has a great interview with rocky johnson where he explores it but again this is stuff they've all put behind them and they they do a lot of business together now and you know it's just one of those things you can look back on and and kind of um dissect it's always one of those fun things so before we wrap it up and we get into this episode what are some of the keys to the game what are some of the things we have to look forward to i mean uh are we gonna have the rock on here in a few weeks did that uh take (laughs) off as we had planned but uh what are some of the things we have to look forward to here that you'd say stand out uh amongst this interview the Rock is definitely going to be a little busy for the next couple of weeks. So that, that's uh, for sure. But as far as this interview, just like a, basically a lot of details about the book, and we kind of went into the book, but also went off in little side stories and little tangents about boxing and how he trained and sparred with Muhammad Ali, and he knew George Foreman very well, and how he incorporated that boxing style into his wrestling style, he, the way he shuffled his feet, the way he moved around, that kind of charisma and it's awesome to kind of think like wow him and Muhammad Ali trained together they kind of have a lot of the same mannerisms and they kind of shuffle their feet the same way and they kind of do the same things so that was kind of a cool thing to kind of delve into and kind of do a little crossover a little wrestling a little boxing and talk about that of course we talk about his many many NWA world title matches not just against guys like Harley Race but against Jack Briscoe and Terry Funk as well we talk about some wars that he had with Jerry Lawler, a little mini feud he had with Nick Bockwinkle, who was the AWA champion at the time. So, I mean, if you think about Rocky Johnson, you think about what he's done in his career, the first ever, along obviously with Tony Atlas, first ever black WWF tag team champions. How many NWA world title matches did he have? How many territories did he kind of have to carry on his back? where they're showing you like, wow, he's got almost going to win the title. You can, you bring all the people in, you sell out the house and the NWA champion sneaks away with the title, you know, and they, and Rocky gets close, but doesn't get the, the shot. So it's just one of those things where it's like, man, they, 
you know, relied on him so much in all these different territories, whether it be Texas, Florida, Georgia. I mean, he was main eventing Houston. He was main eventing everywhere against all these huge names. And we go from top to bottom through all those names. And it really is a, a cool little run, not just talking about WBF, but talking about boxing, talking about the book and talking about his many NWA world title opportunities. Nice. Not something you hear every day. So a very good uh, time to have Rocky Johnson on and promote this book. And please go out of your way to uh, pick it up. And especially in the holiday months coming, it's going to be something on your to-do list to get your hands on this book. Uh, Looking forward to it and thanking Rocky for coming on. A great, uh, a great benefit to us to, to have him grace our airways. We appreciate that. So a lot of stuff going on in the TMPT world. You can check your feed because this goes up on a Friday and tomorrow, Saturday, 6.05, the debut of the JJ podcast, JJ Dillon, making his podcasting re-debut here on the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting empire. So if you're here for Rocky Johnson, why don't you subscribe to us? Stay tuned for something cool coming tomorrow. 6.05, J.J. Dillon on the two-man power trip of wrestling podcasting empire. Looking forward to it. It's going to be a big one. So let's get ready for that. So, John, I'm going to hand it over to you. Why don't you uh, throw it over to this interview with the soul man, Rocky Johnson, and uh, let's get ready for another great TMPT feature episode. You got right here. An NWA Southern Heavyweight Champion, a WWE Hall of Famer, a former WWF World Tag Team Champion. He got the Soul Man, and I have to say, you got to go out there and get the book, Soul Man, the Rocky Johnson story. So without any further ado, let's send it over to this nice little interview with Rocky Johnson. former WWF World Tag Team Champion and NWA Southern Heavyweight Champion. You may know him as the Soul Man. He is Rocky Johnson. Rocky, welcome to the two-man power trip. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Now, Rocky, obviously, so many people know you as the Soul Man. Rocky Johnson, one of the most charismatic figures. But what have you been up to? I mean, we're obviously going to play a major role here in this show and talk about the book, but what has Rocky Johnson been up to? Well, I've just been up uh, living up here in Florida. We just moved back down here by Tampa. It's about another place. I'm just taking it easy, working out, working with kids, uh, kind of semi-retired. I do uh, signings, autograph sessions, stuff like that. But uh, as far as wrestling, uh, I'm retired. And I do work with some of the younger kids that, that – uh, trying to get into the wrestling business. Now, obviously, the, the major focal point of this interview will be 
the book you got coming out very, very soon, Soul Man, the Rocky Johnson story. And obviously the, the forward of the book is by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, one of the biggest stars in the history of the business. But what kind of sets you on the path of writing this book? I wrote the book. Uh, I just wanted to do my life story and started right from uh, when I was growing up in Nova Scotia, Canada, moved up to Toronto, got into the boxing business and boxed for a while, got into the wrestling business, went all over the world. And I, I just want you know people to know that, that the road I kind of paved or opened that I feel I did for other wrestlers. It was hard and rough and tough in those days in the 60s and 70s. Now, obviously, you, you blaze the trail. You're paving uh, a way for a lot, a lot of wrestlers. Can you just talk about how hard it was at that point? Like you said, it was 60s and 70s, but I don't think a lot of people kind of grasp it. Pretty rough time, especially you know, for a big black superstar to kind of make his way through it the was, wrestling it, business. It, it was extremely hard, more so than blacks. When I first started, there was only like three blacks in the business, Boba Brazil, Sweet Daddy, Ziki, uh, Bearcat, right? So, it was hard and rough, especially when I went to the South, because being Canadian, I had to go through all that. But I was a trailblazer. I never got mad, never got upset. I knew I could do it. And I like to say, you know, I'm not bragging to the point, but I let people know that I was the first black Southern champion, the first black Georgia champion, first black Texas champion. Uh, you know, I can go on and on and on. I won uh, 156 titles through my whole career. And it was hard. It was rough. And even being a champion, couldn't stay in the same hotels, had to sleep in my van and stuff like that. But I was never bitter. I took the Martin Luther King approach. I had a dream, and I did. And I knew someday I'd be a world champion. It took me years, but I ended up being a world champion. So I, I, like, I wrote the book to leave something here to let people realize when they see him on TV today and making all that big money, it wasn't all that easy when I started. It's definitely not as easy as it is today. I mean, right. my God, it's, it's night and day to, to, compared to what you went through and what they kind of went through today. What was some of the struggles as you're, as you're kind of making your way through, especially at a young age? Struggles were, well, I don't want to say they didn't want Afro-Americans or blacks in the business. The struggle was you're, you're wrestling with guys and guys that you, you were going over, you were going to win. They didn't want to to make you look good, they tried to make you look bad, so you had to make yourself look bad. I mean, make yourself look good, and that's what I did. I, You know, I fought back, and I fought hard, and, uh, you know, it was either do or die. There was no in-between. I wasn't going to be a mid-carder. I wasn't going to be on the opening match. I worked my way up, and I knew that someday I had I had that drive, but then it's hard to explain. But, you know, I would go back to my hotels or in my van driving, thinking what I could do to make myself better, what I could do. You know, a lot of guys, uh, you go to throw drop kicks, they wouldn't be there for you. And you, you can't get mad and start fights and all that. You just had to suck it up and keep on going. So did they make me look good? No. I made myself look good. And the wrestling they the, business. They, is they, a... say the, they say the philosophy, you're as only good as the guy you work with. And yeah, exactly. In that case, that case, it wasn't true in my, in my case. I had to, so that's why I learned how to shuffle and I learned how to drop kick. I, I, I throw a drop kick and the guy, you could count to 15 before you get up to take another one. So instead of standing there looking like a dummy, I started, I started shuffling and jabbing, 
and it caught on with the people. So I, I like to say I, I probably did the crossover. Not only did the blacks like me, the whites did too. So charismatic, and you're right. That is something that you don't even pick up on. It's like, man, you're, you know, you got almost like this boxer kind of shuffling, you know, and a little bit of jabbing going on and doing that stuff. And I was going to say, the, in wrestling, the opponent is supposed to make the other guy look good and vice versa, and they're not even working with you. So it's doubly tough to do your job. Would, yeah, but, you know, I had some experience. I I, I sparred with Muhammad Ali. I lived next to George Foreman when he won the world's title. I, I, I sparred a lot with him. And, and stuff, and I had a few fights, and I fought amateur. I was Golden Glove as an amateur, so I knew how to take care of myself. But like you said, you know, you have to learn to uh, make yourself look good because now I'm not saying all of them. There's 50 percent that made me look like a champion, but you always get that 25, 30 percent, especially if you're winning and they're losing, and they're on the losing end. Well, nobody wants to be a loser, so they're not. They're on the losing end. They're not going to go there and try and make me look great. I got to make myself look good. Now, what was it like sparring with Muhammad Ali? And that's pretty insane, and obviously one of the biggest stars in the history, not of only boxing and sports, but just the biggest star in general in the whole world. Yeah, well, that was great. He was a great guy. I, I known him for a lot of years. Actually, I met him when I was a kid up in Toronto, and he was still Cassius Clay. He's getting ready to fight George Chavella for for uh, for the championship. No, I'm sorry. He was fighting for George Chavella, but it was for the championship. And I met him up in Toronto at Sully Sullivan's gym, and we started uh, got along good. We started to uh, box and shadow box and count around, and we put a piece of plywood down and we put on James Brown, you know, night train, and we started tap dancing and shuffling the dance. So. He went ahead and called his the Ollie Shuffle, so I said, okay, I'll call mine the Rocky Shuffle. It's got to be just unbelievable if you think about where he ended up. Like, man, like, wow, sparring with this guy, we're kind of shooting the, the shit with each other. We're kind of riffing, and he's getting stuff from me. I'm getting stuff from him. It's it's pretty cool, I mean, to look back in, in retrospect and think, you know, he played a role in your career. You kind of played a role in his as well. Right. I think we fed off each other. You know, he talked to talk and walked to walk, and I did the same thing, but probably not as great as him. But we fed off each other. We were good friends. I really respected him. And, you know, when he left, he went, uh, his, he took his road, and I took mine. And I really think that's what helped me in the wrestling business because I combined the, the boxing and the wrestling together where I could show them that I could box, I could shuffle, I could do backdrops and land on my feet, I could do flips and that. Nobody gave it to me. I had to go work at it and practice and practice and practice, and that's what it was all about, you know. And as far as the book, is there a lot of not only wrestling talk, but is there the boxing talk and the growing up? Do you go through the whole yes, lifespan there? It's my whole life story, yeah. From leaving Nova Scotia at 14 years old, going up to Toronto, Canada, and getting a job in the car wash for 90 cents an hour to survive and going to Trinity Recreation Center uh, training at night because I went to the recreation center because the city paid for it. And then when I started making a couple of dollars an hour, I joined the YMCA for seven bucks a month. And, you know, and actually they had wrestling masks and they had uh, a boxing ring. And I, I just tried everything. I knew there was something out there and I just had to find, uh, you know, what it was. Now, being a black man and basically starting out in the wrestling business in the 1960s, 1964-ish, around that time, and 
was it hard to find a trainer and hard to find somebody that would want to train you at this point? Well, that's funny because the story was we were in uh, Trinity Recreation Center and it was a big snowstorm and it was closed, so we went in through the window. And what had happened, the boxers had it from 7 to 8.30 and the wrestlers had it from 8.30 until 10, the ring. And so I was down there working out. One of these wrestlers, just a job guy, came in and uh, he was in the ring, you know, doing flips and stuff on his own. And I was in there skipping and hitting the punching bag and he says, Hey, come on in. I'll show you a couple of holes. I said, okay. Not knowing that I, he was just going to use me like as a punching bag or, you know, just as somebody to spar with and, and practice his holes on, which I'll say one thing. He was a great guy. He never hurt me, never tried to. So I'd get there after the boxing. I'd wait around. And after they got done, I'd go in with him. So then I asked him, I said, well, how do you get to be a wrestler? And he told me, well, this school in Hamilton. Uh, it was 40 miles from Toronto where I lived, Jack Wentworth's wrestling school. So I went there. I signed up. I think it was like 50 bucks a month or 40 bucks a month. But they trained twice a week, so I had to take a bus. I didn't have an automobile. So I had to take a bus twice a week. It was $2.40 on the bus each way. So I trained from there. And then from there, Whipper Watson was running for Congress and running for something. And he called over to Jackson. He goes, do you have any black kids over there? And Jackson said, well, I got one guy here. He's young. He's cocky, you know, and the whole bit. But the Watson said, well, let me take down, bring him down. I'll take a look at him. So I went down and worked on the mat with Fred Atkins when I was six foot and he made me six foot two. But Watson liked what he saw. And the next week he put me on TV. I stayed there for like three or four months. And then he, uh, he lost election, so he sent me to Calgary to Stu Hart, and I got all, a lot of my experience, and I owe all that probably to Stu Hart and the dungeon in Calgary, Canada. Say Stu Hart's dungeon, the infamous dungeon. So many excellent wrestlers have come out of there. Right, and... but he made, you, he made you respect the business, and that was the thing. And I had to work with him every night at all these little small towns, 15-minute uh, Broadway, which is 15-minute draw. And uh, before I left, he told me, he sent me uh, to um, Detroit for the Sheik. And he said, kid, with your attitude and the way you work, he said, someday you'll be a world champion. And I think that's what gave me the drive and everything. That is awesome. He's saying so many famous guys have, have been trained under him, and the lineage, obviously, not oh, yeah, sons with standing. So many other guys as well. Brett, no one, but so many other guys as well. Oh, yeah, there was a lot of them. The, the Toldis brothers, the Sharp brothers, Dewey Roberts, and I can go on and on and on. But when you left there, you, you, you could probably say you were a wrestler because you knew how to wrestle. And the main thing, Stu taught you a few things how to take care of yourself. You know, because you did get that guy that would try to hurt you. I worked with Fred Atkins, which was a pretty good guy, but he, by then he was in the late 50s, and I worked with him every night, and he had to do a job. Like, he had to put me over every night. And so he was always trying to tie me up or hook me or go behind, really not to hurt me, but to just to let me know who the boss was. That's the way it was back then. They were very tough, very real. They were res- respecting the business, but also protecting well, the business. Guys- a lot of guys uh, didn't make it in them days. You had probably 10% out of all the schools that made it, you know, and if you weren't oh, like 200, 225 pounds or six foot, they didn't want you. Now they'll take you at 130 pounds and five foot eight, you know. 
So that just shows you how the business changed. But I think it changed for the best. I don't know. I, I still watch him and, I, and stuff like that. But I know my days, uh, a lot of those guys that I see today wouldn't make it. Oh, no. Today is a completely different ball game. Like you said, a lot well, yeah, of smaller it's, guys. It's that's showmanship, sure. and it's all showmanship, and it's who can take the biggest thing. The problem with it today, and I'm not knocking it because the guys are making money, and God bless them, but I watch it, and 90% of them have no psychology. They're just doing the move because they know how to do it. Totally agree. So, they're just they're just doing moves. They're not paying attention to the crowd. They're not paying attention to, to it making sense. Yeah, right. They're not they're not telling the story. In our day, we told a story. You know, like you pounded on me for five minutes, and when the crowd was ready and I thought it was ready, I'd get up and make the big comeback and pound on you. Then we'd do that for 10 or 15 minutes, and then we, we would go home, you know, and that would be it. It's a whole different ballgame today. They're almost just doing acrobatics, trying to hurt themselves for real, and not really protect each other. It's just and, move and after move after they, move. And they're lucky they get three or four years, which I got over 30 years in this business. And now they're lucky if they get they, they, if they can get three or four years of it because all the goofy bumps they take, which means nothing when the first match is going over the top ropes into the crowd off a ladder. What's left for the main event to do? You know, it's just so true. It doesn't make any, yeah. And I'm not knocking them. God bless them. I hope they all make money, and I hope they're all happy. I had a good career. I enjoyed it. If I had to do it over again, I would. Probably a little bit different, but I don't think I would have to go through today what I went through 35 years ago. Yeah, I mean, what you went through is crazy. And as far as writing the book and, and reliving some of these memories, was it kind of easy to remember the stuff, or was it a little painful? Was it hard to remember some of the stuff? Because yeah. you're experiencing it all over again. Yeah, I went through a lot, and I had to think about a lot. And uh, a lot of times when I was writing it, and then I realized, hey, what these guys, this guy done and that guy done, you kind of get a little bitter, but then I had to let it go because I wanted the truth. I told the good, the bad. When you buy the book or get the book, you'll see that I told the good, the bad, and the ugly. So, you know, that's what my book was all about. What are your expectations? I'm sorry? What are your expectations for the book? What do you mean? What are my expectations? Like, are you, are you, you know, you think it's uh, basically big seller? Like, how do you kind of foresee it? Or do you have, you know, low expectations? It, it is down. what it is. I, I push. I think the, the book's going to go. It's going to be fantastic. All the, the feedbacks I'm getting and all the interviews and everything I'm doing. I think the book's going to be fantastic. I, I what I'm doing next, I would like to. Uh, uh, with my boy in that, I would like to put it into a movie and let the, pe- let the people really see it. I think I know the perfect guy to uh, help you with that and play yeah, with that. I, I, I know think you said I your do. boy. I know you <laughs> Yeah, I think I know him too. <laughs> he may be the biggest movie star of all time. I think we're on the same page. Well, yeah, because he is. He's the highest paid wrestler and, uh, actor in the world right now. So I think he, he would help you a little bit. But he's always helped me. He's always been uh, behind me. Uh, like now, I like to say he put me out the pasture. You know, I'm just down here working out, working, doing this, doing that, working with uh, the Jody Manager Cancer Center, which for children. You know, when you got a boy that's successful as mine, and then you look at some of these kids 
five and six years old that have cancer and that it really makes you thankful, you know. Absolutely. And he writes the forward to the book, obviously. And, and then as far as him, and you're saying maybe movie, this and that, but when he was starting out in the wrestling business, did you want him to get in the wrestling business or did you want him not to be I, in the wrestling business? I tried to discourage him every way I could because I didn't want him to go through what I went through with all the prejudice, all, all this, all the other. And I, I said, no. And he went to college. He graduated. He was going to, he took criminal justice. He was going to be, he went to a academy in Carolina. He was going to be an FBI agent, but he came back. It was in his blood because, you know, his grandfather wrestled. I wrestled. And, you know, right now we're four generations because his daughter's getting ready to wrestle. So, uh, I tried to discourage him, so he came back, and I had a good talk with him. I said, okay, I'll train you, but I'm going to train you 150%. When I think you're ready, I'll let you know. But naturally, after a month, he thought he was ready, and I held him back and held him back, and he went to New York, and the rest is history. And you always hear the story that you weren't easy on him. You treated him like he no, maybe I trained wasn't. Him. I trained I probably trained him harder than I trained any other guy. And one day he was clowning around, so I got mad. And I said, if you want sympathy, go home to your mother and get it. And he said, that's exactly where I'm going. So he walked a mile and a half home in the rain. Then when I got home, his mother was mad at me. He said I was trying to kill him <laughs> and all that. And then a couple, he wouldn't talk to me for a couple of days. Then a couple of days he'd come and talk. we sat and talk. And I, talk, I explained to him, this is not a game. This is not a joke. You know, you, you're going to go out. You've got championship material in it, and you're going to go out and prove it. And when I think you're ready, I'll let you know. And then we had Pat Patterson at that time was the president for WWE come down, take a look at him, and he, they couldn't believe it, you know. They said, were you aggressive before? He said, I hadn't. Just my dad trained me. And they brought him up, and I don't have to tell you about the rest. One of the greatest, not only wrestling careers, but he turns it into one of the biggest and greatest movie careers and becomes basically the King of Hollywood, one of the biggest stars of all time anywhere. Pretty remarkable. Did you ever foresee that from him? Think, think, I know a lot of fathers think, like, oh, my son's great, but can you ever even think in your wildest imagination, like, he's going to be not, not only a star, he's going to be the biggest star? I knew he was going to be a star. I didn't really think he was going to be the biggest star there ever was or, you know, or is. And I, but he was like me. I seen it in him. He had that drive, you know, and he, he knew, you know, what do I do when I get done wrestling or what am I going to do in that? So, you know, they asked him to go on Saturday Night Live for like three times and he wouldn't go. And then Vince McMahon said, well, what will you do for me? So he says, okay. And he done it, and they seen how versatile he was with all the different skits he did. They took him right to Hollywood, and his first movie, The Scorpion King, uh, he was the highest-paid first-time actor ever for first-time acting role. He just caught on, you know. So good, and I think that especially Vince and obviously Pat Patterson, they probably saw a lot of you in him, that charisma, the way he moved, the body type. Did they mention it to you? Like, you know, they see a great future oh, yeah. because of how athletic they, you were? Yeah. Yes, they did. Vince come up and told me after about two months, he says, the kid, he's a natural. He's like you. And he said, we'll have him a million, make him a millionaire in a year. And I said, oh, yeah, sure. They told me the same thing. But they did. And 
what it was. His match, he went out and done his thing, and Pat Patterson came back hollering at him. You, you, you're not jabbing, you're not shuffling, you're not throwing drop kicks like your dad. And he looked at Pat and said, "Pat, his name is Rocky Johnson. My name's Dwayne Johnson." So I wanted him to do his own thing. I didn't want him to, you know. I I told him to do whatever you felt comfortable with. Drop kicks, he just couldn't catch on. He could kick you in the knees, and that's about as high as he could get. But anything else he could do, he could fly out the top ropes, he could backdrop, land his feet, he could do kip-ups, everything. So I said, you know, you take what you got and what what's not working, just let it go. Don't even worry about it. Now, we know how he got basically recruited there from you, but when you were, got, you know, running the territories, doing, obviously going, you know, the Ohio Territory, Memphis, you said Georgia, obviously Florida, um, you were in the Pacific Northwest, you were in Jim Crockett, you worked for New Japan, but at one point in the late 60s, early 70s, you were, you were in the WWF of Vince McMahon Sr., but how did you get back into the WWF with Vince? Well, Was that something that Pat Patterson recruited you in? No, what it was, when I was with Vince Sr., I was working for the Sheik in Detroit, and I was only going in, in and out on the, on, on the bases. I wasn't in there steady. You know, I was wrestling mm-hmm. Detroit territory, and uh, Vince McMahon would, uh, Sr. would bring me in, Thunderbolt Patterson, and, you know, our cousin Anita Black's up there, so they'd bring us in when the Sheik would let us go. And he'd go, well, you're going to New York for a week. You're going out there for three days. You know, in them days, you said, okay. You had to go where the dollar was. And then when I was in Oregon, Portland, Oregon, I got a call from Vince, Vince Sr., which – uh, one uh, wanted me to come in, and he said, we're going to do something with you. And that's how I went in. And I was there when they made the crossover. When uh, I was there when Vince Sr. passed away. But that's that's how I got into it. When I got into it, it was the WWF, and then they switched it to the WWE. When you're there and you're working for Vince Jr., is there a big difference between Jr. and Sr.? Uh in retrospect, I would say yes. And, uh, you know, Vince Sr., I guess you say like me, only on a bigger basis. He had a dream. He was going to take the world over. And that's exactly what he did, you know. And when my day, it was territories. It was, you know, Texas, uh, Georgia, Florida, places like that. He just went in and he knew he was going to take it all. We worked for him, so we had no choice. We had to go, and we were going against uh, Florida, and we were going against Texas, uh, we were going against Calgary. But eventually, he took it all over, and he took it from the small arenas, uh, you know, and the armories and that, and he took it big time. Look how big it is today. Huge, huge. Global global business, global empire he built. Just WrestleMania alone got probably over a billion dollars because it goes all over the world. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, so he, you have to, he's a, is a businessman. He's a very smart, intelligent man. And I'll leave it like that. And when you come in, it's basically when he was kind of raiding the territories and getting all this awesome talent, like a Hogan, like a Snooker, uh, like an Andre the Giant. He was basically, I mean, these are guys that were in and out of WWF with his father and even him a little bit, but he was taking them and signing them to contracts and then creating TV deals. I mean, you were part of, yeah, of well, this big thing where yeah, he was, was dealing talent. Well, that's what he was doing, but he was paying more money too. 
Yes, <laughs> exactly. So that's fine. That's one of the reasons I went, you know. So, you know, you, you're in territory around figures. In those days, if you're making 100000 150000 a year, and he's going to say, look, I'm going to give you a contract, and I'm going to give you 250 a year at a minimum, and it's on, on paper, what are you going to say? You'd be stupid to say no. You know, when I left and went from Oregon into uh, New York, they got mad at me. But I knew I was going to make nearly the money, and, and uh, which I made a great living in Portland that I was going to make in New York. We use the word revolution because this is a revolution. All Elite Wrestling premieres on Wednesday, October 2nd at 8 o'clock on TNT. We want to set a new standard for all of pro wrestling and for all pro wrestling fans. Made by wrestlers for wrestling fans. Get ready for the revolution with All Elite Wrestling. It's the most exciting professional wrestling in the last decade. AEW flies higher, hits harder, and with their all-inclusive roster of superstars, they are breaking all boundaries. Chris Jericho, Cody and Brandy Rhodes, The Young Bucks, Nyla Rose, and more. All Elite Wrestling, a new league rises Wednesday, October 2nd at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central on TNT. All Elite Wrestling, a new league rises Wednesday, October 2nd at 8 o'clock Eastern, 7 o'clock Central on TNT. Got to do it. I mean, it's just a smart business move. And he was like now with this new league they got coming up at IWA which I think is starting tomorrow night on TV. It's the same thing there. AEW, ne- next week. Yep, next next Wednesday, AEW. Yep, starting up. It's st- yeah, it's starting tomorrow. It's on TV here tomorrow. And no, no, it'll, it, it'll be uh, no October 2nd, so it'll be next next Wednesday. Okay, next Wednesday, you're right. Okay, but, I mean, they're, that's what they're doing. They're snatching up more, trying to get all the t- their talent they can now. Uh, you know, they want older guys like myself to teach these young kids like psychology. They're going to start training these indie guys. And uh, I don't think it's competition. I think it's opposition against Vince because now he didn't have to worry, but now he's got to worry because they got the money behind him. They got TV behind him. And I'm not knocking New York. I mean, New York's doing millions and millions, billions of dollars. But when you got guys who've been there 15, 20 years, come on, you know. It's time for a change. Yeah, and look, uh, this is your old nemesis, Dusty Rhodes. His son, Cody, is one of the bosses there running things. Yeah, he's one of the big bosses. They give him a couple hundred million up front to, just to find uh, uh, for the talent. So, you know, I think they do. I don't know. I watch it. I keep my mouth shut, and, and I wish both sides nothing but the best. Because I always say a guy that's making money, He's happy. When he's not making money, he can't pay his bills, then he's not happy. So, but, you know, I was there when they came up with the contracts, and that was the best thing that ever happened. Because guys know, and now if they get hurt, they got insurance, uh, they they get paid while they're, while they're injured. We never had that in my day. It's definitely a different ballgame, and it's so much different. Oh, yeah, because what I had to do with, uh, I, I made decent money, and I made good money, so... I always made sure my car payment was two or three payments ahead in case I got hurt and had to be off for a month or three or four weeks. I didn't want to reform my automobile, which I've seen that happen to a lot of guys. But now, you know, they got insurance, they got everything. 
which I'm glad for him. So I did see a big change that way. But the thing is, how much time are they getting? They're getting two or three years. They're all banged up. Uh, you know, knees done, hips done, shoulders done. What did, are they looking to think, what, I, what am I going to do after wrestling? Because I'm still young. I'm only 30, 35 years old. What am I going to do for the rest of my life? Yeah, completely different ball game now. You got to be prepared, and obviously more yes, prepared now take, than you were in your day, for sure. Oh yeah, you most definitely have to be because they're not getting all the the, the years and time. I mean, look at Ray Mysterio, greatest guy in the world, nicest guy ever me. But look at all the injuries he's had, and he's only what thirty three, thirty four years old, and you couldn't find a nicer guy. But he was smart. He saved his money and invested it. And but how many guys uh, are not? You know, probably eighty percent. Very, very true. Now, going back to you for a second and WWF, you know, you had a singles run there. You're going along, but then they put you in a tag team with Tony Atlas, the Soul Patrol, if you will. The chemistry with you guys, was it the same on screen? It was off screen. Did you guys get along? So I always heard that you guys didn't really get along off camera, but on camera, obviously, the chemistry is a lot different. Right. The tag team was only, uh, we didn't get along. Uh, we had two different personalities, and uh, he was he was uh, the, the kind of the jealous type, uh, the, you know, that, that everything had to be his way, or, you know, he couldn't drop kick, he couldn't shuffle. And I think the thing was, too, and I'm not knocking him or anything, but he's in the ring and they're all like, Rocky, Rocky, you know, and I think that would bother me, too, if it had to be reversed. But he never got along with anybody, not only with me. You never got along with Pusky, Hogan, uh, n- nobody. That's that was his personality, you know. So, you know, I just let it go. I mean, after the matches, he went his way, and I won mine. You know. The first ever black tag team champions, you're the WWF tag team champions, to beat the Wild Samoans. Such an historic match and such an historic championship. What are your thoughts looking back on that? I thought that was the greatest thing that that happened. I think Vince knew it was time for the crossover. He knew it was time to make a black gym, uh, champion. He didn't want to take a chance on just an individual, so he went with the tag team to see. And it got over very well. People uh, really went nuts. and uh, you know. But then at the end, he got fired because uh, he would make all the big towns and he wouldn't make the small towns. And then I went to uh, – Washington, D.C., and I walked in the dressing room, I seen Bobo Brazil sitting there, Then I knew right there that they were going to fire him. So they did. They naturally took the belts from us, and and then they fired him, and they let him go, and then they brought him back to Zamba Zuba or something, and they kept him for a little bit, and then they let him go again. So I don't know what he's doing now, and, you know, whatever he's doing, I wish him the best, and that's about all I can say. Pretty crazy if you think about it, that you look so chemistry-wise, you look like you were so uh, got along so well on-screen, but off-screen, that's a completely different ball game. Oh, yeah. We didn't hardly speak to each other, talk to each other. But he did that with everybody. You know, he just had a, a real bad, and I hear he still got it today. I don't know, but I heard uh, he's got it. He, them days, you know, he, he just had that bad, he, he which yellows everybody, and the Hogan was bigger and stronger, and he's telling me I should be world champion, and I'm saying, okay, I should be world champion too, but they made Hogan out world champion, so what are you going to do, fight City Hall? Hmm. You know, So and that, and that was his downfall. 
And you mentioned you guys probably could have been champions longer. I mean, it's a 154-day reign, but like you said, he kind of screwed that up, and it could have and should have been a longer title run. Yeah, Vince had it for longer, for a long time. But it was in those days, you know, we went to big shows, Baltimore, New York, Boston. But then we also did the high schools and uh, and the armories, you know, spot shows, we called them. And he'd never show up for them. He'd just show up for the big shows. And half the time, you didn't know when he was going to show up. And if somebody made a mistake, one of the guys were wrestling, usually them were just job men on TV. And, you know, most of them had daytime jobs. And if they made a made a mistake, he would curse and swear and call them all kinds of names and, and stuff like that. His attitude was real bad. And, well, look what he's doing now. I mean, he's doing all those shoot interviews, knocking Snooker, knocking Roddy Piper, knocking Bruiser Brody, everybody, you know. That, to me, I think that's sad and sickening, but I stay out of it. Yeah, you guys should have definitely 100% been champions longer. You lose the tag titles, North South Connection, Dick Murdoch, Adrian Adonis. Then you kind of go into singles run for a bit. Why did you end up leaving the WWF? I left up leaving because my back started hurting. My knee was hoping, hurting. Then my father-in-law, High Chief Peter Maia, was opening the territory in Hawaii. And uh, he had just bought it from Ed Francis. And he wanted me to come down there because you know, I was his son-in-law, and he wanted me to help him both and stuff like that. So I left him went to Hawaii. And it's funny, they, the, the way you leave, it's not like one of those things where you're, like, kind of losing on the way out either. They kind of, you know, they, they let you get some wins. Was that kind of uncommon back then? Well, they knew that in case they ever wanted to bring me back, and they knew I drew money for him, and they knew, and I'm not bragging, that I was a decent worker, so... Even my last match in the garden, I figured, well, this is it. I'm going to put somebody over. And they put me over, you know, in like six minutes. They said, well, do your stuff, do your backdrop, land your feet, do your drop kicks, your shuffle, and sunset flip, one, two, three. I couldn't believe it. I said, okay, fine. Yeah, they kept me strong when I left. They really did. And I'm kind of like researching, looking up. I was like, wow, I'm surprised. I, I knew you had a singles run, but I surprised all the wins on the way out. I was just like, wow, that, that is definitely different, especially from Vince. Yeah, I know. It was, and it surprised me, too. But uh, he never beat me. He never used me as a, as a job man or nothing. He just kept me strong. Well, as long as I was getting over with the fans, you know. Absolutely. And as we start to wind it down here, we head towards the finish line. Just got to ask about some of your favorite matches, because you were always kind of the, the main event of the territory. Like you said, champion in Florida, champion pretty much everywhere you went obviously uh, nwa mid-america down there memphis tennessee cwa I was, even, uh, I was even champion in arabia i was champion in africa i still have the belt here from africa i never wow. went back to defend it <laughs> wow yeah so and they, I didn't was, really, they didn't really yeah. like me over there because i wrestled a black guy over there at power Rudy, and they don't really care for american blacks or canadian blacks and everything mm. so so I won the belt, and the BBC from London, England, came in and taped it. And they wanted me to come back in 30 days. So I said, okay. And I knew I wasn't coming back. So I got the belt, and that was it. Because, you know, I couldn't go any place, had to stay in a hotel. They hated me. So crazy back then. You just think of the different things and, and you know, what could, what takes place and the, kind of the hatred and the vitriol for kind of no reason. But on more of a of a – 
of a high note of a, of, a, of a good note is that you had so many NWA world title matches, whether it was against Harley Race or Terry Funk or Jack Briscoe. I mean, just looking at that, it's just like, wow, you know, what a career. And anybody that's facing the NWA champion, especially those three, that is some pretty high praise. And that's some pretty, you know, as far as what they think of you, if you're on the top of the card against those guys in an NWA title match, that's pretty important. Oh, yeah, I was making four or $5,000 a match. I wrestled Harley Race three times for the world title in St. Louis. I wrestled him here in Florida. I wrestled Jack Briscoe uh, three or four times. Uh, I had great matches with Terry Funk when he was world champion. And then I had a lot of main events. So any Terry I went in, and again, I'm not bragging or saying it was me. Or I guess I guess my style was a little different. But any place I went in, they would tell me they had plans for me. You know, and they didn't have plans. I wasn't going to go. But I never yeah. had one territory. I had never had one territory tell me that. You know, but I've yeah, seen guys always made that. Event. Yeah, but I always I've seen guys where they tell them we can bring you in, use you up and down, which means we'll beat you one night and let you win the next night, or we'll keep you in in the middle, but you're not a main eventer or stuff like that. You know, and I guess I was fortunate enough for probably the only Afro-American or Canadian-American, whatever you want to call me, because I have dual citizenship, uh, that that they looked up to, you know, respected. I got a lot of respect on this business because I gave a lot of respect. And uh, I had a good career. I really enjoyed it. I loved it. I look back at it, how hard it was, but I didn't know any better. So I went out and did what I had to do. Big few with Jerry Lawler down there. You're fighting Nick Bockwinkle for the AWA world title. I mean, a lot of big-time matches that you had throughout your career. Any of them stick out more than others? Yeah, Harley Race. Uh, Harley Race and Jack Briscoe, I would say, I had. They stick out because, and, you know, they wouldn't beat him. They wouldn't beat me. And uh, I went an hour with Harley Race. Then I come back and went 90 minutes with him. And I go an hour Broadway, uh, an hour with, with Jack Briscoe. Anytime I worked with a world champion, it was always an hour or a disqualification. They didn't want to beat me. Because, again, you got to remember, they didn't have a lot of blacks in them days. Yeah, that that's true, especially um, not with your charisma, your skill, your athleticism either. So you, know, you throw that in there, too. It's like hard combination that's- to beat. Yeah, that's the, what they looked at, you know. When I went in Tennessee, they had three or four black guys in there. And, again, I don't knock anybody. They, but they were satisfied. They were decent. And, you know, they had them eating, uh, eating chicken, fried chicken on TV, and they wanted to tar and feather them and all that garbage. I didn't play that role. I went in as an athlete wherever I went, and I was going to leave as an athlete. Now, as far as the book, I just want to make one last final pitch for the book. Soul Man, the Rocky Johnson story, coming out very, very soon. Scott Keel, a great author, helped you out there. What's kind of like the the final push for the book? If somebody's kind of on the fence or you're maybe thinking about, give us you know a real reason why they should buy Soul Man. Why I think they should, I, I think it's an interesting book. It shows my, my life story. It shows you the struggle. When when they looked at me and seen I was the world's champion or seen I was this champion, they didn't know what I went through and what it took to get there. And and I think when I read other books, I read them on Muhammad Ali, I read on uh, Jackie Robinson and baseball. I based mine around Jackie Robinson where he had to, break down all the, the racial barriers. And that's what I think I done. 
and I kind of paved the road, I hope I did anyway, for other wrestlers. And it also talks about me growing up uh, uh, where I had to work for 90 cents an hour and, and then get a dollar and a quarter an hour, but I still trained, and I never gave up hope, and that's what I want to get to these people today. No matter what you're doing, whether it's in wrestling or whether it's in anything, always say, I can, and you will accomplish. But if you give up, you're only defeating yourself. Now, where can people get the book and maybe do a little they bit can, of? Uh... They can get it off uh, on uh, on most of the stores. They can get it on uh, Amazon, and they can go on Facebook and just uh, punch in a Rocky Johnson, and then they'll see where to get the book. The book comes out the fifteenth of next month, and I'll be doing signings all over, like Barnes and Noble, some places like that. They'll be carrying the book. One last time, of course, it is Soul Man, the Rocky Johnson story. Like you said, check it on Facebook, Soul Man Rocky Johnson. I'll have all the info on there. Check it out on Amazon if you want to purchase it that way. Barnes & Noble, wherever your books are sold, that's where Soul Man, the Rocky Johnson story, will be available. And, Rocky, is there anywhere where the fans can kind of reach out and, and reach out to you? Would you suggest Facebook or anything if anybody kind of, you know, wanted to just say hi or, you know. Yeah, you can yeah, you can Facebook me, just uh, Rocky Johnson at bellsouth.net. And uh, anybody that, that Facebooks me, I'll be more than happy to get back with them. All right. Well, Mr. Johnson, thank you so much for all the time you gave today. And it's been a real honor to talk to a real trailblazer and one of the most charismatic men ever in the history of the business, the soul man himself. Well, I appreciate all the compliments and uh been a pleasure talking to you this podcast was a presentation of the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcast empire